All right. We are wrapping up our series today about uh, with us. And I want you to think about I want you to think about that moment, and I don't know what it is like for you, but when um, I was growing up and, and my wife's family, when I you know, married her and, and was a part of their family traditions, uh, the dad or the mom or grandma or grandpa usually would write, they would, they would take out the Bible and they would read um, a particular Christmas story, right? And it's usually um, similar texts, whatever, and we're going to talk about a text this morning that's not normally, in fact, probably never read at Christmas time around that tree with your family. But it's an important text. It's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, 13 through 23. And so if, if dad or mom or grandpa and grandma say, let's read Matthew 2, 13 through 23, you can say, wait a minute, what's going on? And you'll, you'll understand as we read it. So let's stand together. And I'm going to read this selection of verses. Let's honor God by reading his word this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, get up, he said. Let Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until you... For Herod, stay there until, you, until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in her dreams to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And so he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, who was Herod's son, who was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. And you can be seated. So there's several things in this text that I just want to highlight before we get into why um, this is important for us to understand what's going on here. First of all, that the, um, the reason why uh, Joseph uh, took his family to Egypt, because that was... Uh, Alexandria was the typical spot for um, expatriates who would go, who were being oppressed, and that's where they would go. There was a, a large group of people that were there taking refuge, and so that's why he headed down to Egypt, which then fulfilled some prophecies in the Old Testament. Um, when um, Herod was, um, I mean, Herod was just a mean guy. Courtney um, shared a little bit about that last week. 
And just, um, he was just a very unscrupulous ruler. I mean, put it in modern day times mildly, I mean, he was really the ultimate Grinch, right, of Christmas. I mean, so much so that he, um, and she talked about it last week, that he would find it no problem to kill his own children or his sisters and brothers if he felt like they were opposing to his crown, his reign. I mean, that's just the type of a guy that he was. And so when um, he realized that he was being outwitted by the Magi, I mean, he was furious, and that's probably not even really uh, a stronger, there's got to be something stronger in there that describes what he was. I mean, he was just really, really angry, and he went on a rampage, and he said, all right, here's the deal. In response to that, then I am going to kill all the children under the age of two in Bethlehem and surrounding areas. Now, we, we begin to realize, I mean, it's interesting because there's no other history accounts of that particular um, massacre, massacre, but that's not um, all that unusual in the sense that Herod was such a horrible ruler and he was so cruel and so mean that, that this kind of thing happened and it was a normal. And so for this, what we understand in this village of Bethlehem and surrounding is probably not very many people. And so at most, there's probably 20 <clears throat> 20 to 30 children that he killed. That's horrible. Horrible. But it's interesting that it wasn't, it's not mentioned in any other history accounts, probably because it just didn't raise an eyebrow with the people around there. But to that village and to those parents, that was just completely devastating. We see several times that the angel comes to Joseph, and four times that happens. Four times that happens. And then towards the end, another key part of this passage is that we see that he's coming back, and he doesn't want to settle um, in the land of Israel, and so he goes down to, because of um, Herod's son, and so he goes to Nazareth, and he's a Nazarene, which then also fulfills um, a prophecy. And so we're going to come back to a couple of those things, but I wanted to highlight those things as we dive into this text this morning. There are um, many questions that I feel like when I read this text and um, I go, after I'm done reading it, I go, all right, that's a good bit of history, but Matthew, why did you include these verses in this text? I mean, it, on the surface, it doesn't seem like it adds to the, to the nice you know, birth account of Jesus and that kind of thing. I mean, what do you want us to understand? And what we begin to learn in the Gospels is that Matthew, Mark, you know, in the Gospels, that they had a lot of material to pull from in the life of Jesus to share with us. And so when they included things in their Gospels, it's really for two reasons. It's one is that it actually happened, and so they're going to record it and give it to us so that we can understand. And number two is that it's going to reveal something about the character of our Savior and his life and his events. And so when we read a text like this, all right, we understand that this really happened. And then secondly, it's going to reveal something about Jesus and about 
um, how we respond and all of that. And so our job then is to figure out what that might be, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So really, what is Matthew trying to tell us? And, and I think where we're at is this, and, and I've got a little cute in my big idea, so excuse, excuse this, but Christmas means that in this Game of Thrones, which is just a reference to an HBO miniseries, which is not very good, the goal is not to win, <laughs> the goal is not to win, but to lose. And so here's what I mean by that. I mean, history records, right, that there's many battles that go on all, all over the time in space, and really it's about who's going to attain that power, who's going to attain, in, in essence, some, maybe it might be a throne, or it's a seat of power, whatever it is, but these battles rage on and on and on, don't they? And it's usually about who's going to win and who's going to sit on that throne, and we see that happening across history. We see that um, not only in our history with these battles across nations, but we also see that in music, right? We see that with um, the battle to be number one on iTunes or whatever billboard chart you might be on. We see that with humanitarian efforts, with the Nobel Peace Prize or just Nobel Prizes in general, or to, to raise the most amount of money or whatever it might be. We see that in sports, the sports world for sure, with all the different championships and that kind of thing, who can be the best in their particular sport. Um, we see that in writing, um, again, who um, can be number one on the charts. And we see that in movies with all the different awards, the TV shows and whatnot. And so we see this a lot going on and on and on. Not only that, but do we, we see it in our neighborhoods. Uh, <laughs> When somebody does something, well, I've got to do that, or whatever it might be, or somebody buys a car, or whatever it is, we're trying to write upstage or to win, whatever that might be. We see it at school. Um, who has the most friends? Who has the most likes? Who has all the social media stuff? We see it um, in our families, even, with our kids, and maybe even against husband and wife. And most certainly, we see that in our own life, this battle that rages with who is going to sit on the throne, and believe me, there is a throne figuratively inside of you that there's this battle that's waging right now. I'm a firstborn child, and I like to think that a lot of that firstbornness is why I am the way that I am. Um, I'm very competitive, and I just was clear from the beginning um, in sports um, just with my brothers, and, and to this day, they would say, Kevin, you literally annoyed us every time because you had to be the best at everything. My parents would give me 50 cents, not, not two quarters, but a half dollar for every A that I got, and I, I didn't care if I learned. I just wanted the most 50-cent pieces, more than my brothers, right? I just did not care. And then when I went to seminary, you know, it went up to $1,000 a day. No, I'm just kidding. It did. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, I just am very, very competitive. And, and I'm realizing this, um, that it comes out in my driving. And so I'll drive, and I told this before, and I'll just say it again. When I'm driving, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's an older lady 
or an older man or a millennial or a hipster. I don't care. Whoever's passing me, whoever's passing me, there's just something inside of me that rises that goes, they are, it's not that I'm mad at them. I'm not mad at them. I just want to beat them. <laughs> and so a lot of times I'll win the battle. And, and, and as I get older, more times than not, I'll win. But then there's just moments where my wife will look at me and go, here you go again, isn't it? And then I'll be convicted and I'll sulk in shame and I'll let her drive. No. But yesterday, I just was amazed again at where this battle rages. In, and it was just a little thing, but um, yesterday we were at my mom and dad's for Christmas. And we were around the, the supper table. And my mom was, my brother lives on the East Coast, and he... Um, they talk a lot, and he was telling her that he went to go see the Star Wars movie on Friday. And she was just going on, and, oh, he was the first one to see it. And I go, Mom, I saw it on Thursday at 6. <laughs> I saw it first. <laughs> I'm 56 years old, and I'm worried. Anyway, I was joking with her, or was I? I don't know. <laughs> I thought about that later. I'm going, Kev, you are a sick, sick man. Anyway, each one of us has this throne inside of us where um, that whoever occupies that throne is really the one that takes charge of your life. And, and it really helps you make decisions um, moment by moment in just really literally everything. And so when we look at this text, we go, all right, so Matthew, what are you trying to tell us, to me, um, through this life of Herod? Because when we see Herod, we ask this question, how could he do such an evil, evil thing as to simply keep his throne, he goes out and without any, I imagine, there's callousness in his heart, without any remorse whatsoever, wipes out 20 or 30 little babies, not caring about the ramifications of that, Also, he could keep his throne. And I think that we've asked this question over and over and over again about, because um, we read the news globally, nationally, locally, and we've asked this question, how could someone, how could this country, how could this person, how could this group of people do these evil things? I mean, you just have to listen to the news and open up the paper or read it online or whatever it is, and, and you just go, man, how could they do these evil things. And we begin to ask the question, if we're really thinking and soul-searching, is where does this evil come from in the world? And of course, many would say it's those that are in power that, you know, force this and they're, they're evil and all that. Or maybe it's the lowly and, you know, the evil or the criminals and such and the poor who are there. And so there's, there's battle. And what I want to say and what I believe Matthew says to us and what the Bible 
says to us is this. When we look at the full teaching of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is that we begin to understand that the source of all the world's evil is every human heart. It's my heart, and it's your heart. And if we think about that, we go, no, I'm a good person. But yet, Scripture says something different. So then, if the source of every evil or the source of evil is every human heart, then in, its, then in a sense, King Herod, his reaction to the little baby being born is really a picture of us all. I want you to think about this. If you want to be king, and Courtney touched on this last weekend, if someone else comes along and says that he is king, then one of them have to give in, right? Because here's the deal. Only one person can sit on the throne. And when we begin to admit that, when we begin to admit that, then it will help us when this game of thrones begins to play out in our life, that when we, our goal is not to win, but is to lose, then we can begin to understand that And we're going to talk a little more about that. But that's the first part of what that means to to not win but to lose. It's to admit that only one can sit on the throne. And what I I mean by that, that there's not room for two. There's not room for, okay, it's either going to be God or it's going to be self. And everything else that we do that we might place on there, really that's just a manifestation of our selfish desires and gratification. So it's either going to be God on the throne in our life or it's going to be self. And we need to admit that there's only room for one. It's not you on one half and God on the other half. That just doesn't work. It's either going to be God on the throne of your life or it's going to be yourself. And we see this in this text where Jesus in Luke 14, 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So this is not a command to literally become hateful to your family, to one's family. Rather, what he's doing is he's calling you and I to this allegiance that's so supreme that it makes all of the commitments look It looks weak. He has this absolute claim of authority on our life. That he wants this unconditional loyalty from you and I as sisters, or as as sons and daughters. But when we hear that, and if we're honest, it triggers some kind of resistance in our heart. They go, no, he really can't mean everything. Romans 8, 7 through 8, Paul says that in its natural state, the human mind uh, is, has enmity or there's hatefulness toward God. And then he adds in that selection of verses there, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And so there's this 
at the core of you and I, at the core of our heart, is this impulse that says, no one can tell me what to do. That's true, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves, that is there. No one can tell me what to do. And culture and training can go a long way into masking that in our life. We can hide that, um, this deep, deep instinct of this rebellion, rebelliousness to God, even to ourselves to think that we are a good person because we are taught to be cooperative. We're taught to be a team player. We're taught to be a kind and loving person. And we want to see ourselves that way as well. And there are many reasons why it's necessary for us to live in denial as to how powerful this instinct is in our life. But no, however, no amount of education or therapy can remove that from us. It will always be there. That's what we were born with. According to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from these, these self-things, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and self-absorption. And what's the one word that's the same in all of that? And that is self, right? And so self is on the throne of our heart. And each one of us wants the world to orbit around us and our needs and our desires. And just think about yesterday. Think about this morning. Think about last week and, and all of that. And there's this battle, right, that goes on about wanting the world to revolve around me. Look at me. It happened last night with my mom, and I was just joking with her, but I really wasn't joking with her. I really wanted her to know that I saw it. Why is that? It's because I want the world to revolve around me, and that's this battle that goes on in our life. We don't want to serve God naturally, and we don't want to serve our neighbor naturally. We want them to serve us if we're really gut-level honest. And so in every heart, and I love this phrase, it's not original with me, but it's, there is a little King Herod in every one of our hearts that wants to rule and is threatened by anything that may compromise its reign. That's what I mean by that, this King Herod story that Matthew talks about. He shares with us how King Herod was threatened by this baby Jesus and his throne. And we are like him. We have this little King Herod in our heart. And anything that comes in that would threaten that self-rule in our heart, we're going to look at skeptically and go, nah, that really can't be or do whatever it needs to be to not let that happen. We want to be the master of our own fate. In Romans um, 3, 10 through 11, Paul writes, There is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And we look at that in the face value and go, can that really be true? I mean, perhaps we would say uh, it's true that no one is perfectly good and righteous, but how can we say that there's no human being who seeks for God? I mean, aren't there millions of sincere followers who are really seeking him? And theologians would argue two things. They would argue first that 
um, they want the things that God gives. So they want love, they want help, they want strength, they want forgiveness, they want happiness. But they don't actually seek or want God himself, but they want those things. And it's a lot like um, um, someone who marries into money. And they want the residual of all that, but they don't really want the spouse. Right? As he is or she is revealed. I mean, that's that same way for a lot of people is that they want all that residual stuff, but they don't really want God himself. They don't really want Jesus. And we, we, there's evidence for this for, for people that, um, that they have come to faith and then, or what they claim to be a follower of Christ, and then they've left because their lives are not going the way they wanted them to, wanted them to do, or God was not being faithful in answering their prayers. Second, People may seek God as they want him to be, but no one seeks God as he reveals himself to be in the Bible. I mean, think about everything from Genesis all the way to Revelation. I mean, there's some incredible truth in there about who God is, and, and sometimes it's hard for us to digest that. I mean, here's, uh, listen to this quote. I'm just going to read a quote. Here's one of the dark truths about Christmas. The dark episode of King Herod's violent lust for power points to our natural resistance to even hatred of the claims of God on our life. We create gods of our own liking to mask our own hostility to the real God who reveals himself as our absolute king. And if the Lord born at Christmas is the true God, then no one will seek for him unless our hearts are supernaturally changed to want, and, or to, want to seek him. And so Paul says that all of our hearts are naturally God's enemies, Romans 5.10. And that's those that practice or those that don't practice religion and those that do practice religion. I mean, in, in the religious circles, we try to tame God, right? We, we ask him to do things or we do things to, to put him in our debt, hoping that when it comes time to shower blessings, that he will remember all the things that we do so that we are the ones who are going to be blessed. I mean, that was the thing that I had to wrestle with. That's the thing that our daughter had to wrestle with. That our obedience was really at the core, at the bottom, was really about wanting a grandchild or wanting a son or daughter in their life. And we really had to answer that question do I really love God for who you are or do I really, am I really doing all these things, praying and going to church and Bible study because I want you to be, I want to put you in my debt so that you have to bless me. And that's a hard thing for us to answer. So this question of where's the true king that the Magi asked it's probably one of the most disturbing questions for us to answer in our human heart because we all want to remain on that throne at all costs. And we may use religion to stay there, right? Or we may not. Or we may flee religion, become atheists, and loudly claim that there is no God. But either way, we are expressing our hostility, our natural hostility to this claim of Jesus' reign in our life, which is what the Christmas story is all about.
And so we need to admit that this battle is real. We need to admit that this battle is real. That um, that it's there. That self is naturally there. And if I'm saying yes to God, yes to Christ in my life, then there's this battle that wages. And it wages every day, all the time. I mean, why do you think it's so hard for you to pray? Why do you think it's so hard for you and I to pray? Why, why do we have to have so many classes about to help us to learn how to pray? Why do we struggle? Why do we have guilt? Why do we have shame? I mean, why is it so hard for us to concentrate on this incredible Savior, Jesus Christ, this little baby that was born in this manger who grew up and who, and I just got done reading the book of Mark this morning, and I just got done reading the, again, the account of the crucifixion and just the amount of pain that he went through. Why is it so hard for me to be um, touched and moved by that particular moment at a particular time and then an hour or two hours later completely forget all about it? I mean, why is it so hard for us in that sense? Why is it so hard for us when God answers prayer and he does it in a lot of different ways and we, we get that answer and we're so overjoyed and we're so blessed and we share it on social media and then six months down the road we completely forget all about it and we go, God, why don't you answer my prayer? I mean, why is it so hard for us to do that? It's because that there's still this little King Herod in our life and it's not going to go away until Christ comes back and we're taken up into heaven. And we're going to completely be brand new. Right now, we still have that little King Herod in our heart, and there's still this battle that goes on. I am running out of time, so I'm going to make a decision here. <laughs> this third thing admitting that there's only one spot on the throne admitting that the battle is real and then the last thing is admitting weakness and you will find strength there's so many times in the scripture and I don't have time to go through all of it but if you look at scripture you'll look at so many times that, that God uses the underdog per se I mean, when the older person, the older son, the older sibling was the one who would, again, would gain, you know, all of the family wealth and that kind of thing, it was, if usually, if you will look, God didn't use the older, he used the younger. He didn't use the most beautiful, he used, in, in the accounts of um, uh, Rachel and, um, I'm trying to figure out here, um, Hagar, Sarah and Hagar. Leah and Rachel, um, Elizabeth, people who couldn't have children, and then all of a sudden God says, yes, you're going to have a child. I mean, over and over and over again, he chooses, he chooses to work so that his power can be displayed, which is the reason why it's important at the end of that text that it says that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Because if we'll read in the book of John that there's a particular person that says there's nothing that good... There's nothing good that comes out of Nazareth. And, and, and that's by design. So we, we see that Jesus, when he died, um, 
was despised from where he came from. He didn't come from royalty. He came in a manger as a little baby, and the family was poor, and he came from, was raised in Nazareth from, in essence, the wrong side of the tracks, and all these things so that he could be elevated and God could be the one who was glorified. And he didn't ascend to a throne, right? At the pinnacle of his life, his human life, he ascended a cross. And he died a death for you and I. And so when we admit our weakness, we will then find strength because that's what Jesus' life was all about. I am weak. I need my heavenly Father. I'm ascending to the cross. I'm having this death on the cross. I didn't ascend to a throne until I died, was buried, and rose again, and now I'm seated at the right hand of my Father. He came as our substitute to bear evil, suffering, and death, which is really the consequences of our turning from God clear back from um, when we were born. He did this So that if if we believe, if we repent, we can be reconciled to him. So that when he comes back the second time as king, right, and he's going to end all this evil, he's going to put it away so that we can be recognized or we can be reconciled and we can go with him to heaven and all this evil is go away and so that his weakness was really his strength and it will be ours as well. So here's the comfort in all of this. In essence, Jesus is saying, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've been um, a minion for Satan. I don't care what deep, dark secret you hold in your past. I don't care how badly you've messed up. If you repent... And you come to God through Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying to you. Not only will my Father accept you and work in your life, but he will absolutely delight in you. And he wants to work in you um, to reach other people. And he wants to work in people like you, despite everything that you might say, yuck towards here's the challenge for us though is that while that's true and we're reconciled Jesus says God says I want you to live in the world that I've created and there's going to be a whole bunch of people that they're going this other path and they're living their life with self on the throne and I want you to be um, Jesus followers I want you to be contrarians in essence I want you to be different. I want you to be people that live with God or Jesus on the throne, God on the throne, not self. And there's going to be a rub there, but I want you to do it. I want you to be peaceful, and I want you to be loving and all those things, but I want you to live amongst people. I don't want you to segregate and be your own little cluster of people because I've sent you out into the world, and that's um, our challenge. So why do I care who wins? Going back to that point, in this Game of Thrones, it's really not about who wins. We don't want to win, we want to lose. And so why do I care about who wins? Because when when Christ comes into my life and I submit my life to him, there's peace. 
there's absolutely incredible peace in my life. Here's what I know is true about um, our life um, outside of Jesus Christ. Is that your life, if you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, your life is going to be characterized by fear and insecurity. Because why? Because you're never going to feel like you have been or are being good enough in whosoever eyes. It's going to, it might be marked by pride and this incredible disdain for people. And you love being on top and just bullying through people like a bull in a china shop or whatever it might be. You just, that just is right inside of you. And the reason why that's there is because you feel like you actually have been good enough. And so this pride wells up. Or your life might be marked by self-loathing. If you feel like you've failed, this pity, um, you failed and just poor, poor me. And you find yourself being whiplashed back and forth between all these emotions. And that's how you live your life. But when you come to know Jesus... And there's another way, right? There's another way. When you come to know Christ, you can believe the truth that Christmas initiated. That Jesus came down as both God and man. And the message and the good news is this, that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that you can get an identity as a son, as a daughter, that you are humbled out of your pride. But you're affirmed as a son, as a daughter. You're loved as a son, as a daughter. And that helps you out of your insecurity. And it's a relationship that offers you forgiveness and restoration when you fall. And it's just an absolute, an absolute incredible, incredible thing. When you begin to do these battles, and they happen all the time, and you um, win one, what begins to happen? Your relationship with Christ begins to deepen, and you begin to trust in Him more and more. And these battles um, don't become as severe and less and less, and there's more and more time in between them. And that, to me, is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And there's peace there. So let me pray. God, we thank you for today. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you, Father, for this church family. God, help us. This is, uh, in, in some sense, a hard message that your servant Matthew wrote in chapter 2. And you um, chose to include this part, God, in your written word to, I believe, help identify in us this thing that maybe we didn't really have know what was there or to help us, um, God, realize that we can't in and of ourselves um, seek after you, God. You have to come in and initiate. We have to be obedient and then continue to be obedient, God, in that. So help us in that, Father. 
I pray that our hearts will follow after you. Give us the strength that we need, God. Help us to love you. God, help us to win these battles more and more and then help us to, to lose so that you can reign supreme in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.